as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this, news, what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of the heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined that the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, Dionysius, I don't know, Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. It's a bit like that sometimes, isn't it? I, I give up. <laughs> I was uh, somewhere yesterday and... Uh, the man was doing a Bible reading from Nehemiah and he just, just nailed the names. I just thought, you go, you go, son. You, uh, good on you. Uh, just before I begin, uh, you should have received, hopefully you received a, a flyer about the upcoming survey series. Please uh, think and pray about who you might be able to invite along to that. Uh, there's also heaps still of the, of the business cards that you can use to ask people the questions. So please just keep doing that right up to and through that whole survey series, just Keep asking the question to people. Ask uh, the people at the supermarket. Ask whoever you come into contact with. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your words to us. Uh, Thank you that they are powerful words empowered by your Holy Spirit about Jesus Christ through whom we can know you and approach you and be your children. 
And Father, we ask that uh, you would speak clearly to us this morning, that we would receive your words in faith uh, and obedience, uh, and that we would know more of you. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, how do you share the gospel in a place or a society which has little or no Christian roots? Uh, it's a surprising, surprisingly important question for us, I think, because we live uh, in a day and age that is like that. Go back a few decades uh, and we were in a society where you could assume that most people had some kind of idea about Christianity. It might not have been the, the, the right idea, but they knew the kind of, they had the language of the Bible, they knew the basic idea of what the Bible was, they had heard of Jesus before. They had a rough idea about who he was. As one person has said, if people were atheists, they were Christian atheists. That is, the God that they didn't believe in was the God of the Bible. Not so now. Now there's a new generation of people growing up who have no idea about the Bible. They, they don't share that vocabulary. They don't share that vocabulary of things like sin. They don't know what that means. They don't... Uh, have the same view of the world. Some have never even heard uh, anything about Jesus. Some people, you might ask that question, who do you think Jesus is? And they might have absolutely no, no idea. It's in that kind of situation that Paul finds himself in Acts chapter 17. In most of Acts, Paul is going from place to place and he's going to cities and speaking to people who know something about the Bible. They're either Old Testament believers, whether Jew or Gentile, people have kind of thrown their allegiance in with uh, God and they need to hear the full message of Jesus, uh, or they're people who have just kind of circled around those things. So, so when Paul speaks to those people, then they sort of have that context. But not so here. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is communicating the gospel to people who are godless, uh, for want of a better word. They know nothing about uh, the Bible, Christianity. And so how Paul communi communicates the gospel here helps us not only to understand the gospel better for ourselves, but also helps us to communicate the gospel better to others uh, as well. How, how it helps us to do that better in a post-Christian society. So in the section that... Uh, uh, that we read just before, Paul finds himself in Athens waiting for Silas and Timothy. He, he gets here in events, he had to flee from the last place. He arrives early and he's just walking around waiting for his uh, fellow workers to turn up. And while he waits, he decides to keep telling people about the good news of Jesus, of what God has done in Jesus. And he does that, we're told in verses 16 and 17, because of what he saw as he walked around. Athens had formerly been the almost spiritual and intellectual capital of the world. It had been the home city and the adopted home city of people like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus and Zeno. It's like the who's who of Greek philosophers. Uh, it was a home of great sculpture and architecture. People still travel to Athens today to see some of the buildings that are left over from that period of time and, and, and afterwards. It was also a place of keen spiritual interest. You could barely walk down the street without tripping over an idol. Uh, one ancient writer by, uh, by the name of Xenophon described it as one great altar 
one great sacrifice. There was so much idolatry, it was just like one giant idol. Well, that's the place that Paul finds himself in. And as he walks through this city of intellectual, cultural and spiritual significance, he's overwhelmed, not by the creativity and the beauty of what he sees around him, but by the lostness and the ignorance of people. How little honour there was given to God, to the God who made us and who loves us. As he walked around, he saw this city full of idols and he was distressed for all the intellectual, uh, spiritual and cultural heritage, for all the keen interest. People were lost. They wanted to know God, but they didn't know, they didn't know God and they didn't even know how to know him. You might think that we don't live in a society like Athens, uh, with temples, Uh, or gods littering the streets. But in many ways, we do. We have our own temples and our own gods. My brother used to always uh, talk about people going to the shops using the language of uh, going to worship at the temple of consumerism. Uh, And if you've been to some of the big, you know, shopping malls uh, in Sydney and so on, you know what he's talking about. It's just just these massive temples uh, to indulgence. Uh, enter glamour. Just walking through the city, uh, our city, and through the shops in our town is an exercise, I think, in, in sorrow and sadness. Let me tell you what I see when I walk around Launceston. I walk past the bottle shops and I think of all the people who worship alcohol. And I don't just mean the people who Uh, who are slaves to it and whose lives have been destroyed by it. I mean all the people who can't enjoy life without it. They can't enjoy any moment in life without, uh, without alcohol and without drinking too much. And there are every moment of the day, it seems, new and bigger bottle shops opening up everywhere. I walk past the food outlets and see all the people who worship food. I see people who are already overweight, buying enormous quantities of food. I see people filling up their shopping trolleys at the supermarket. I see aisle after aisle in the supermarket, dedicated to, to optional foods, snacks. <laughs> and people heading down those aisles with abandon and filling up their trolleys. I think of the statistics of obesity in our our country, where almost two-thirds of adults in Australia are overweight or obese, and one-quarter of children are overweight or obese. That's an astonishing reflection on the idolatry of food, and not just the idolatry of food, but the idolatry of consumption and indulgence. And it's not just overweight people who worship food, let me just say that. I walk past the clothes shops and the images of glamorous people and countless people wandering into the shops and I think to myself, their great hope in going in there is to be transformed into a new and different and better person. Their hope is that they'll go in, they'll buy a piece of clothes and it will make people love them. It will make them beautiful. I was standing behind two women at Bunnings the other day who were explaining why they were buying two long pieces of dowel 
It was because one of their friends in a drunk fit had thrown the $400 pair of shoes into a spot that they couldn't reach. And I thought to myself, how do you get to a point where you're spending $400 on a pair of shoes? These were not people leaving the hardware store in a BMW or a Mercedes-Benz. They weren't people in the upper echelons of society. I see people wandering around with no purpose just wandering from store to store to buy something in the hope of finding meaning, a quick thrill, substance to an empty life. I see young girls in the mall hanging off young guys, desperately hoping for a significant relationship. And I see the young girls being totally ignored as the guy spends all the time talking with his friends. I see people who have no hope in the world. I see normal people who are going about normal lives who don't know Jesus, who don't honour him as Lord and who are facing an eternity without God. What we see in our city is exactly what Paul saw in Athens. The gods of our city might not be called Aphrodite or Mercury or Apollo. They're called glamour, Romance, significance, indulgence. And people still flock to their temples and still give themselves and all their money to buy what they promise. And they still go home dissatisfied. And they still fail to honour the God who loves them and who made them and who can give them the very satisfaction that they so deeply desire. It is catastrophically sad, actually, to walk through our city. Well, Paul ends up in Athens by mistake, uh, by his mistake, (laughs) by God's plan and purpose. And as he surveys the city, he sees the spiritual need. So what does Paul do? Well, he preaches the gospel. He visits, visits the synagogues and he visits the marketplace to speak to whoever will listen. The marketplace wasn't just a place to go and buy and sell things. Uh, It was a place of ideas as well. It was an ideas place. Uh, Socrates used to hang out in the marketplace. uh, And it it becomes clear as we read through Acts 17 uh, that it's an ideas place when a bunch of philosophers turn up. I just love the idea of this kind of posse of philosophers, uh, you know, in long flowing robes turning up at the marketplace to debate ideas. There's two groups, there's the Epicureans uh, who followed Epicurus uh, and who believed in gods but thought that the gods were kind of a long way off and didn't really interfere with the world. Uh, The other group were Stoics who followed Zeno and they were uh, more or less pantheists which means that they believed that God was in everything, that he was everywhere around them. Uh, the people of Athens, Luke tells us, were people who loved to debate ideas. It wasn't just the philosophers, it was everyone in this whole city. Uh, Verse 21, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking uh, and and listening to the latest ideas. It's like uh, like Oprah, you know, but on a massive scale uh, and, and everywhere. Paul's strange new ideas... 
uh, and the people's love for discussing ideas leads to a request for him to speak at this thing called the Areopagus. Uh, The Areopagus was a forum or a council of the city, uh, and their main interest seems to be here, at least, in debating new ideas. Uh, Paul takes whatever opportunities comes to him uh, to present the gospel, Uh, so he speaks at the synagogue, he speaks at the marketplace, and finally he speaks uh, at the city debating hall. Well, a good friend of mine always used to say to me, Carl, what's our Areopagus? Uh, And it took me a while to work out what he was talking about, but once I worked it out, uh, what he was saying was, where is it that people go today to debate big ideas? In part, I wonder if people still debate big ideas. In most of the conversations that I have with people, we're not talking about big ideas. Uh, when I meet up with, with people, it seems to be people are much more interested in discussing the mundane and the trivial. But it is possible, I think, to talk about big ideas with ordinary people. Part of the purpose of that survey question, who do you think Jesus is, is to try and get big ideas on the table. And the feedback so far from people who've used it is that it's actually quite helpful. I asked someone the other day who they thought Jesus was. Uh, It was an awkward thing to do, but he was captive in my car, so he had to answer. Um, And it really made him think. And he thanked me several times for asking him that question. In fact, I asked him sort of at the beginning of the night and he thanked me three hours later when I dropped him off home. He said, I'm, by the way, thanks for asking that question. And I'm going to ask my friend as well what he thinks about who Jesus is. And I'd love for you to tell me what other people say. Scratch beneath the surface and people want to talk about big ideas, but they don't know how to get the conversation going and they don't know actually the kinds of questions to ask. But we as Christians have the big idea and we can help them to ask the questions and we can help to give them the answers as well from what we know about Jesus. And like the philosophers of Paul's day, most people, once they hear a bit, are pretty interested to hear more. Tell us more about that. I'd really love to know. But are there places in our day and age, like uh, like in Athens, where people would go to debate big ideas? Some people say it's the internet. The internet, Carl, is a place where you debate big ideas. But I'm not actually sure. I don't think people use the internet, by and large, to debate big ideas. People use the internet to clobber other people uh, for, their own, for their ideas, and they kind of just throw their own ideas out there. It's not, it's not like the marketplace. It's not like the Areopagus. There's not a discussion And newspapers, I think, are often a bit the same. The letters to the editor are all about pushing an agenda. There are some people who use the internet and newspapers well. The Centre for Public Christianity, I don't know if you know them, but uh, it's headed by John Dixon, or it's not actually headed by him anymore, but it came from his work. Uh, And they write articles in the paper and they do videos online and it's it's really helpful to go on their website and, and to follow the things that they do because they can teach you a lot about engaging in the public space. 
Uh, in a sense, the upcoming Launceston Easter Community Festival is an attempt to create a marketplace where one doesn't exist. People aren't talking about big ideas, so let's put something big on where we can actually get people thinking about something big, something bigger than themselves. Things like the Death by Chocolate coming up this Thursday night uh, and the Introducing God courses are attempts to create marketplaces, attempts to create places where people can ask questions, discuss big ideas. And Sunday morning is a time where we talk about big ideas, big ideas that people don't normally think about. Uh, In truth, I don't think we have a single marketplace or Areopagus like they did in Athens. I suspect different groups have different Areopagi, if that's a a real word. Uh, The Areopagus of the footy club is the club rooms, right? Or or, Or the change rooms. The Areopagus of the literati is the book club that meets on Tuesday nights once a month. The Areopagus... Of uh, the marketplace or or of the workplace is the lunchroom or Friday afternoon drinks. The the areopagus of the school is is the schoolyard, is the oval, the playground. The areopagus of the family is the dinner table or the family birthday party or the big Christmas get together. Like Paul, we need to be alert and creative in thinking about the places where we can talk about the big ideas of the gospel and of life. Well, Paul ends up in Athens by mistake, but as he surveys the city, he sees the spiritual need, and so he preaches the gospel in the synagogues and the marketplace and the Areopagus and wherever anyone will listen to him speak. The rest of the chapter then goes on to show us how Paul engages with these philosophers and these people And as we see that, as we look at that, we can learn an awful lot about how to engage people with the gospel ourselves, how we can make the gospel relevant and compelling to people. Well, there's a number of things that Paul does. First of all, he begins from people's worldview. So having walked around the city, Paul gets a sense of where people are at. And he says in verse 22, "'Men of Athens, I can see that in every way you are very religious.'" For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. He knows what he does. He walks around Athens and he looks carefully. And he finds this inscription and he says to these people, he doesn't say, you idiots, what do you think you're doing building idols? They're nothing. Don't be stupid. What does he say? He says, I see that you're very religious. I can see that you care deeply about knowing God. You're not doing this on purpose. You, You really want to know God. Well, let me tell you that God that you want to know, I can tell you about He begins where they're at. And beginning where people are at means that we need to understand where they're at. It means we need to listen and to observe and to understand. So you might say to an environmentalist, I can see that you care deeply about the environment. I can see that that is important. I can see that is deeply, deeply important to you. And that is right. Because, you know, God cares deeply about the environment as well. 
He cares deeply about the environment because he made it. And you know, the reason that you feel so deeply about it is because not only did God make the environment, but he made us to look after it. And he's printed that deeply on our hearts. What you feel is an echo of the person that God made you to be. See, evolution doesn't help you to understand that, does it? Chance doesn't help you to understand your responsibility for the environment. It's survival of the fittest. Why should you care? So what if the ecosystem doesn't fit together anymore? The new winners will rise up. No, what you feel, do you see, is what God made you to be. I can see that you care about the environment and you're right to feel that way. You might say to the friend of yours who's a lesbian, I can see that you really want to be loved and that you really desperately want to love someone. And that's right. We were made to love and we were made to be loved. God's a Trinitarian God. He's one God, so intimately connected together. Three people, so intimately connected together that he's one God. It's an eternal relationship between the Father and the Son, eternal love. What you feel is the echo of what God made you to be. But let me tell you about the relationship that you're really searching for. Let me tell you about the love that you really need to know. You might say to someone, uh, a friend of yours who's a Muslim, I can see that you care heaps about knowing God. Let me tell you a little bit about the God of the Bible that I know. Let me tell you about his love. Let me tell you about the certainty, the hope, the assurance that we can have about eternity because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Knowing where people are at takes listening and observation. And part of the purpose of that whole survey uh, question is to help us as individuals and as churches to know what people think. And knowing what people think, then to be able to speak the gospel into their lives. So Paul begins from people's worldview. Second, he leverages the common truth, the shared truth, to help people see the true God. In verse 23, Paul quotes an inscription from one of their altars in the city. He says, to an unknown God. In verse 28, he quotes one of their poets. For in him we live and move and uh, have our being. People who don't know God can still have tremendous insight into the world around us. Uh, They don't know the whole truth but they know enough of it to say something meaningful and accurate. Uh, The environment, the environmentalist, as we've seen, rightly feels a sense of responsibility for the creation. The person in search of truth, uh, in search of love, rightly feels the need for love. Lots of poets and authors throughout the history of the world have written amazingly insightful things about the human condition. It's one of the reasons it's so helpful to read poets and, and books uh, and watch films because they, they help us to understand the world and they help us to understand, more importantly, what people think about the world. Uh, even nursery rhymes have insight into the human condition. We're all like Humpty Dumpty. 
Uh, and like Humpty Dumpty, all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put us back together again. If all the people in the world put their shoulders to the wheel, they couldn't put my life back together and they couldn't put your life back together. Only God can do it. Films reveal the human condition. You might remember that a few years ago I endured the, the, uh, the Twilight series when it, was on, uh, when it was on television. And what I found so distressing was, uh, and I found that so distressing, I should say, because I realised that what made those films so deeply successful was not a stunning, a stunning script. It certainly wasn't a stunning script. And it wasn't even beautiful actors. But it was the reflection and refraction of that deep longing for eternity and love and victory over evil. Films reveal the human condition. C.S. Lewis and Tolkien both believe that fairy tales, that stories, that myths express our deepest longings. And they grasp at the truth. They, 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 they see the problem, but they don't know the answer. Great myths are about a broken world that some hero needs to set right, that some hero needs to put back together, whether it's Superman or Batman or Hercules or whoever it is. But what sets Christianity apart is that it's the true myth. That is, it's the true story. It's the true story that captures our deepest need. It's the one story about a broken world being put back together by a hero, which is actually true. And all those other stories are just shadows of that. As Andrew uh, Moody, a uh, Melbourne theologian, has written, with the concrete historical uh, coming of Christ, the aspiration of the fantasy writers raised to fulfilment. That is, all the stories that people write about, all the things that people long for, have found their fulfilment not in stories, not in films, not in books, but in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The stories express our deepest longings, but the historical person of Jesus fulfills our deepest needs. So Paul begins where people are at. He leverages the shared truth to show people the, the, the to show people the true God. Third, he challenges their ideas and presents the gospel. He doesn't just say, well, look, we agree on lots of stuff. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't it great? We can both see the problem. No, he says, this is, this is the problem, and then he shows, uh, this is what we agree on, and then he says, this is the problem. He challenges here two main ideas. He says, God doesn't need us to do anything for him. Uh, God doesn't need anything to do us to do anything for him because God made us. In ancient times, people would build temples for gods, that was their houses, and people would bring offerings to God, that was their food. Uh, of course, in the world, in places in the world, people still do that. But Paul says, God made us. God made everything in the world. So how stupid is it then to think that he needs anything from us? If he needs food, he could just make some more of it himself. If he needs a house, he can just build one, just build another universe, for goodness sake. 
If God made us and everything else, what can we possibly bring that God doesn't have? Instead, Paul says, God has set the boundaries of our lives, has marked out our life from beginning to end so that we would realize that God is not dependent on us, but we are dependent on him so that we would seek God. Of course, the great era of of our age uh, is not the same as Paul's age. Our era is the opposite era. They thought God needs our help. We need to uh, serve God. Our error is that we think God needs to serve us, that God's great purpose in life is to fulfil our uh, deepest longings, uh, everything that we want. And yet Paul's answer addresses our world too. God has set the times of our lives and the places of our lives so that we would realise that God doesn't serve us. God is not a genie in a bottle. God has marked out our lives so that we would realise that we are dependent on him. God doesn't need anything else, uh, from us, we need God. Uh, but also, God is not something that we make, says Paul. God isn't an idol, he's not made of stone or wood. He's the mighty God who made us. Uh, we may not make idols out of gold or silver, but we do feel the irresistible pull to turn God into a God of our own making. We make a God who likes all the things that we like. We make a God who approves of all the things that we approve of. Uh, We make a God who hates all the things that we hate. We make a God who gives us everything that we want uh, and nothing that we don't. Paul says God is not a God that we create. He is the God who made us. He's the God who is there. We don't get to craft him into something that satisfies us. We have to accept him for who he is. So Paul begins with where people are at. He leverages the shared truth. He challenges the ideas. And fourth, he preaches the gospel. He preaches the resurrection of Jesus uh, and the judgment uh, to come. He says in verse 30, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn to him. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of all this uh, to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul preaches the most controversial ideas in Christianity. He doesn't hold them back. He preaches the judgment. He preaches the resurrection. And he preaches the exclusivity of Jesus. Sooner or later, you always come to the hard edge of the gospel. The reality of judgment for those who don't turn to Jesus and the need to accept and believe the resurrection power of God in Jesus and to submit ourselves to Jesus' rule and rescue. Sooner or later, you come to those truths. You come to the truths of the gospel. You come to the truths of the, of the Bible. Uh, it was great yesterday to head down to Hobart to celebrate the ordination uh, of the new uh, Anglican Bishop of Tasmania, uh, Richard Condy. And we were reminded in the sermon there that a bishop without a Bible is no bishop at all. That you can have the robes and you can have the staff, the crook, you can have the cross around your neck, you can have the great cathedral with the great stonework. But a bishop without a Bible is no bishop at all. 
and how heartening it was actually to, to hear uh, Richard Condy's uh, interview on ABC that night saying that his main ministry here in Tasmania would be to travel around to the different churches and teach the Bible. You see, understanding other people's worldviews and using the shared truth, the common areas of agreement, will only get you so far. To preach the full gospel, you have to use the Bible and you have to say the things that are are controversial and that are often disliked. You have to say, Jesus is the only way to God. You have to say, the reason we know that Jesus is who he is is because he rose from the dead. You have to say that there is a judgment to come for those who reject Christ. Without that, everything else that we might say is just window dressing. You might have the best opening moves of evangelism, but if you don't sell the gospel, it's all a waste of time. Of course, it's tempting to leave those hard, th- hard things off for fear that people might laugh at us as they laughed at Paul. But we have to show them Jesus. And it doesn't matter that much how we get there. We can learn from what Paul has done, and that's great. But we just have to get them to Jesus, to his obedient life, to his atoning death, to his powerful resurrection from the dead, to his ascension to the right hand of God, and to his impending return to judge the living and the dead. To this gathering of all those who call on his name. People will respond in different ways to that, just as they did for Paul. Some will believe, even some of the Areopagus members believed here in Acts 17. Some will want to hear more and others will laugh. But it's a helpful reminder, I think, that even the best apologetics won't always win. But God doesn't call us to win. He calls us just to be faithful and to do our best to proclaim Christ into a world which is desperately longing for it. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With the same spirit of faith, we believe and therefore speak. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we look around our world, we, like Paul, see the desperate lostness of people. People worshipping and longing Uh, for things other than you. Uh, And Lord, it grieves us so much because we know the deep joy that it is to know you. And we know your honour and glory that you have shown to us in Jesus Christ. And we're jealous for your name, for your glory. And we're saddened by the spiritual condition of those who don't know you. Lord, we pray that you'd press those things deep into our hearts, 
that we would, like Jesus looking out over Jerusalem, long to gather the people in our arms. Long for them to be gathered around Jesus Christ, our precious Saviour. Lord, help us to be faithful in the ministry that you've given to us and the different places that you've placed us, whether it's the home, whether it's the workplace, whether it's the schoolyard, whether it's the university campus, whether it's on the streets, on mission fields, on the other side of the world, whether it's in shopping centres, in pubs or footy clubs, amongst friends or families. Lord, we ask that wherever you've placed us, that you would help us to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel. Help us to be wise and understanding, to listen and to understand where people are at, to be compassionate, to leverage the things that we share with them but ultimately to show them Jesus Christ and to point them to him. And Lord, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would call them to faith. Not for our glory or for our sense of satisfaction, Lord, but for the glory of Jesus' name. Uh, In whose name we pray. Amen.